The Right Eye of the Commander in Selected Stories by Bret Hart This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Sandro Kucha Selected Stories of Bret Hart The Right Eye of the Commander The Year of Grace, 1797, passed away on the coast of California in a southwesterly gale. The little bay of San Carlos, albeit sheltered by the headlands of the Blessed Trinity, was rough and turbulent. Its foam clung quivering to the seaward wall of the Mission Garden. The air was filled with flying sand and spume, and as the Señor Comandante Hermenegildo Salvatierra looked from the deep embrasured window of the Presidio guardroom, he felt the salt breath of the distant sea buffet a color into his smoke-dried cheeks. The commander, I've said, was gazing thoughtfully from the window of the guardroom. He may have been reviewing the events of the year now about to pass away. But, like the garrison at the Presidio, there was little to review. The year, like its predecessors, had been uneventful. The days had slipped by in a delicious monotony of simple duties, unbroken by incident or interruption. The regularly recurring feasts and saints' days, the half-yearly courier from San Diego, the rare transport ship, and rarer foreign vessel, were the mere details of his patriarchal life. If there was no achievement, there was certainly no failure. Abundant harvests and patient industry amply supplied the wants of Presidio and Mission. Isolated from the family of nations, the wars which shook the world concerned them not so much as the last earthquake. The struggle that emancipated their sister colonies on the other side of the continent to them had no suggestiveness. In short, it was that glorious Indian summer of California history around which so much poetical haze still lingers, that bland, indolent autumn of Spanish rule, so soon to be followed by the wintry storms of Mexican independence and the reviving spirit of American conquest. The commander turned from the window and walked toward the fire that burned brightly on the deep oven-like hearth. A pile of copy-books, the work of the Presidio School, lay on the table as he turned over the leaves with a paternal interest and surveyed the fair round scripture text, the first pious pothooks of the pupils of San Carlos, an audible commentary fell from his lips. Abimelech took her from Abraham. Ah, little one, excellent! Jacob sent to see his brother, body of Christ, that upstroke of thine, Paquita, is marvelous. The governor shall see it. A film of honest pride dimmed the commander's left eye. The right, alas, twenty years before had been sealed by an Indian arrow. He rubbed it softly with the sleeve of his leather jacket and continued. The Ishmaelites having arrived, he stopped, for there was a step in the courtyard a foot upon the threshold and a stranger entered. With the instinct of an old soldier, the commander, after one glance at the intruder, turned quickly toward the wall, where his trusty Toledo hung, 
or should have been hanging. But it was not there, and as he recalled that the last time he had seen that weapon, it was being ridden up and down the gallery of Pepito, the infant son of Bautista, the tortilla-maker, he blushed and then contented himself with frowning upon the intruder. But the stranger's air, though irreverent, was decidedly peaceful. He was unarmed, and wore the ordinary cape of tarpaulin and sea-boots of a mariner. Except a villainous smell of codfish, there was little about him that was peculiar. His name, as he informed the commander in Spanish, was more fluent than elegant or precise. His name was Peleg Scudder. He was master of the schooner General Court of the port of Salem in Massachusetts on a trading voyage to the South Seas, but now driven by stress of weather into the Bay of San Carlos. He begged permission to ride out the gale under the headlands of the Blessed Trinity and no more. Water he did not need, having taken in a supply at Bodega. He knew the strict surveillance of the Spanish port regulations in regard to foreign vessels, and would do nothing against the severe discipline and good order of the settlement. There was a slight tinge of sarcasm in his tone as he glanced toward the desolate parade ground of the Presidio and the open unguarded gate. The fact was that the sentry, Felipe Gomez, had discreetly retired to shelter at the beginning of the storm, and was then sound asleep in the corridor. The commander hesitated. The port regulations were severe, but he was accustomed to exercise individual authority, and beyond an old order issued ten years before regarding the American ship Columbia, there was no precedent to guide him. The storm was severe, and a sentiment of humanity urged him to grant the stranger's request. It is but just to the commander to say that his inability to enforce a refusal did not weigh with his decision. He would have denied with equal disregard of consequences that right to a 74-gun ship which he now yielded so gracefully to this Yankee trading schooner. He stipulated only that there should be no communication between the ship and shore. For yourself, Senor Captain, he continued, accept my hospitality. The fort is yours as long as you shall grace it with your distinguished presence. And with old-fashioned courtesy he made the semblance of withdrawing from the guardroom. Master Peleg Scudder smiled as he thought of the half-dismantled fort, the two moldy brass cannon, cast in Manila a century previous, and this shiftless garrison, a wild thought of accepting the commander's offer, literally conceived in the reckless spirit of a man who never let slip an offer for trade, for a moment filled his brain, but a timely reflection of the commercial unimportance of the transaction checked him. He only took a capacious quid of tobacco, as the commander gravely drew a settle before the fire and in front of his guest untied the black silk handkerchief that bound his grizzled brows. What passed between Salvatierra and his guest that night, it becomes me not, as a grave chronicler of salient points of history, to relate. 
I have said that Master Peleg Scudder was a fluent talker, and under the influence of diverse strong waters furnished by his host, he became still more loquacious. The commander learned for the first time how Great Britain lost her colonies, of the French Revolution, of the great Napoleon, whose achievements perhaps Peleg colored more highly than the commander's superiors would have liked. And when Peleg turned questioner, the commander was at his mercy. He gradually made himself master of the gossip of the mission and Presidio, the small beer chronicles of that pastoral age, the conversion of the heathen, the Presidio schools, and even asked the commander how he had lost his eye. It is said that, at this point of the conversation, Master Peleg produced from about his person diverse small trinkets, crickshaws, and newfangled trifles, and even forced some of them upon his host. It is further alleged that, under the malign influence of Peleg and several glasses of aguardiente, the commander lost somewhat of his decorum, and behaved in a manner unseemingly for one in his position, reciting high-flown Spanish poetry, and even piping in a thin, high voice diverse madrigals and heathen canzonets of an, an, of a, of an amorous complexion. Chiefly in regard to a little one who was his, the commander's soul, these allegations perhaps unworthy the notice of a serious chronicler, should be received with great caution, and are introduced here as simple hearsay. That the commander, however, took a handkerchief and attempted to show his guests the mysteries of the semi-quaqua, capering in an agile but indecorous manner about the apartment, has been denied. Enough for the purposes of this narrative that at midnight Peleg assisted his host to bed with many protestations of undying friendship, and then, as the gale had abated, took his leave of the Presidio and hurried aboard the general court. When the day broke, the ship was gone. I know not if Peleg kept his word with his host. It is said that the Holy Fathers at the mission that night heard a loud chanting in the plaza, as of heathens singing psalms through their noses that for many days after an odor of salt codfish prevailed in the settlement, that a dozen hard nutmegs, which were unfit for spice or seed, were found in the possession of the wife of the baker, and that several bushes of shoe-pegs, which bore a pleasing resemblance to oats, but were quite inadequate to the purpose of the provender, were discovered in a stable of the blacksmith. But when the reader reflects upon the sacredness of a Yankee trader's word, the stringent discipline of the Spanish port regulations, and the proverbial indisposition of my countrymen to impose upon the confidence of a simple people, he will at once reject this part of the story. A roll of drums ushering in the year 1798 awoke the commander. The sun was shining brightly, and the storm had ceased. He sat up in bed, and through the force of habit rubbed his left eye. As the remembrance of the previous night came back to him, he jumped from his couch and ran to the window. There was no ship in the bay. A sudden thought seemed to strike him, and he rubbed both of his eyes. Not content with this, he consulted the metallic mirror which hung beside the crucifix. 
There was no mistake. The commander had a visible second eye, a right one, as good, save for the purpose of vision, as the left. Whatever might have been the true secret of this transformation, but one opinion prevailed at San Carlos. It was one of those rare miracles vouchsafed the pious Catholic community as an evidence to the heathen through the intercession of the blessed San Carlos himself, that their beloved commander, the temporal defender of the faith, should be the recipient of this miraculous manifestation was most fit and seemly. The commander himself was reticent. He could not tell a falsehood. He dared not tell the truth. After all, if the good folk of San Carlos believed that the powers of his right eye were actually restored, was it wise and discreet for him to undeceive them? For the first time in his life, the commander thought of policy. For the first time, he quoted that text which has been the lure of so many well-meaning but easy Christians, of being all things to all men. Infeliz, Hermenegildo Salvatierra. For by degrees an ominous whisper crept through the little settlement. The right eye of the commander, although miraculous, seemed to exercise a baleful effect upon the beholder. No one could look at it without winking. It was cold, hard, relentless and unflinching. More than that, it seemed to be endowed with a dreadful prescience, a faculty of seeing through and into the inarticulate thoughts of those it looked upon. The soldiers of the garrison obeyed the eye rather than the voice of their commander, and answered his glance rather than his lips in questioning. The servants could not evade the ever-watchful but cold attention that seemed to pursue them. The children of the Presidio school smirched their copy-books under the awful supervision, and poor Paquita, the prize pupil, failed utterly in that marvelous upstroke when her patron stood beside her. Gradually distrust, suspicion, self-accusation, and timidity took the place of trust, confidence, and security through San Carlos. Whenever the right eye of the commander fell, a shadow fell with it. Nor was Salvatierra entirely free from the baleful influence of his miraculous acquisition. Unconscious of its effect upon others, he only saw in their actions evidence of certain things the crafty Peleg had hinted on that eventful New Year's Eve. His most trusty retainers stammered, blushed, and faltered before him. Self-accusations, confessions of minor faults and delinquencies, or extravagant excuses and apologies met his mildest inquiries. The very children that he loved, his pet pupil Paquita, seemed to be conscious of some hidden sin. The result of this constant irritation showed itself more plainly. For the first half-year, the commander's voice and eye were at variance. He was still kind, tender, and thoughtful in speech. Gradually, however, his voice took upon itself the hardness of his glance and its skeptical, impassive quality, and as the year again neared its close, it was plain that the commander had fitted himself to the eye, and not the eye to the commander. 
It was surmised that these changes did not escape the watchful solicitude of the fathers. Indeed, the few who were first to ascribe the right eye of Salvatierra to miraculous origin and the special grace of the blessed San Carlos, now talked openly of witchcraft and the agency of Luzbel, the evil one. It would have fared ill with Hermenegildo Salvatierra had he been aught but commander or amenable to local authority. But the reverend father, Friar Manuel de Cortes, had no power over the political executive, and all attempts at spiritual advice failed signally. He retired baffled and confused from his first interview with the commander, who seemed now to take a grim satisfaction in the fateful power of his glance. The Holy Father contradicted himself, exposed the fallacies of his own arguments, and even, it is asserted, committed himself to several undoubted heresies. When the commander stood up at Mass, if the officiating priest caught that skeptical and searching eye, the service was inevitably ruined. Even the power of the Holy Church seemed to be lost, and the last hold upon the affections of the people and the good order of the settlement departed from San Carlos. As the long dry summer passed, the low hills that surrounded the white walls of the Presidio grew more and more to resemble in hue the leathern jacket of the commander, and nature herself seemed to have borrowed his dry-hard glare. The earth was cracked and seamed with drought, a blight had fallen upon the orchards and vineyards, and the rain, long delayed and ardently prayed for, came not. The sky was as tearless as the right eye of the commander. Murmurs of discontent, insubordination, and plotting among the Indians reached his ears. He only set his teeth the more firmly, tightened a knot of his black silk handkerchief, and looked up his Toledo. The last day of the year 1798 found the commander sitting, at the hour of evening prayers, alone in the guardroom. He no longer attended the services of the Holy Church, but crept away at such times to some solitary spot where he spent the interval in silent meditation. The firelight played upon the low beams and rafters, but left the bowed figure of Salvatierra in darkness. Sitting thus, he felt a small hand touch his arm, and looking down he saw the figure of Paquita, his little Indian pupil, at his knee. Ah, littlest of all, said the commander, with something of his old tenderness lingering over the endearing diminutive of his native speech. Sweet one, what dost thou hear? Art thou not afraid of him who everyone shuns and fears? No, said little Indian. Not in the dark. I hear your voice, the old voice. I feel your touch, the old touch. But I see not your eye, Senor Comandante. That only I fear, and that, O oh Senor, O oh my father, said the child, lifting her little arms towards his, that, I know, is not thine own. The commander shuddered and turned away. Then, recovering himself, he kissed Paquita gravely on the forehead and bade her retire. A few hours later, when silence had fallen upon the presidio, he sought his own couch and slept peacefully. 
At about the middle watch of the night, a dusky figure crept through the low embrasure of the commander's apartment. Other figures were flitting through the parade ground, which the commander might have seen had he had not slept so quietly. The intruder stepped noiselessly to the couch and listened to the sleeper's deep-drawn inspiration. Something glittered in the firelight as the savage lifted his arm. Another moment, and the score perplexities of Hermenegildo Salvatierra would have been over. When suddenly the savage started and fell back in a paroxysm of terror. The commander slept pre peacefully, but his right eye, widely open, fixed and unaltered, glared coldly on the would-be assassin. The man fell to the earth in a fit, and the noise awoke the sleeper. To rise to his feet, grasp his sword, and deal blows thick and fast upon the mutinous savages who now thronged the room was the work of a moment. Help opportunely arrived, and the undisciplined Indians were speedily driven beyond the walls. But in the scuffle the commander received a blow upon his right eye, and lifting his hand to that mysterious organ, it was gone. Never again was it found, and never again... For bale or bliss that it adorned the right orbit of the commander. With it passed away the spell that had fallen upon San Carlos. The rain returned to invigorate the languid soil. Harmony was restored between priest and soldier. The green grass presently waved over the sere hillsides. The children flocked again to the side of their martial preceptor. A te deum was sung in the mission church and pastoral content once more smiled upon the gentle valleys of San Carlos. And far southward crept the general court, with its master Peleg Scudder, trafficking in beads and peltries with the Indians, and offering glass eyes, wooden legs, and other Boston notions to the chiefs. <laughs>